Julian Smith, welcome to the metagame. <laughs> Is that whole thing going to go on? Or are you going to trim it? Or <laughs> Thanks for having we'll, me. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking it's kind of tricky to intro you because you have uh, at least two careers. And so when I was thinking True. about it, there's like the media side and then there's the entrepreneurship side. So I'm just going to list a couple of the things in both and then maybe you can yep. add to it and draw a line and connect them. But um, mm-hmm. on the media side, I think you started one of the earliest podcasts ever or you started yes. the earliest hip hop podcast. The, the the first hip hop, it's embarrassing to say this, but it's yes, I started the, the one of the first podcasts in the world in 2004 when really we figured out that we can do podcasting, right? And uh, and then I was listening to a lot of hip-hop music at the time. And so it was a combination of me when I'm 25 years old, just kind of like talking shit into a microphone and and typically hip-hop music or sometimes electronic music. Yeah. Did you rap at all? <laughs> I did not rap. This is the first time I've been asked this. Thank you. I just want to put that on the record that I did not. <laughs> <laughs> so so okay the earliest podcast and then uh you were using social media uh very intelligently when it was pretty early and i think that's what led to your new york times bestseller trust agents in uh, 2008 mm-hmm. and then yep. you wrote the flinch which yep. is uh it's a book about why people don't do the things that they claim they want to do and that's had a yes. huge impact on my life um, but then you have this whole other side. You have the entrepreneurship side. You started yeah. a company called Breather and raised over $150 million for it. And yeah. I've actually used a Breather room before. I would describe it as like a like Uber for conference spaces. So you can just like <laughs> get yeah, into yeah. a yeah, room. Yeah, it's with flexible your phone. real estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then now you're the CEO and founder of a company called Practice that helps solopreneurs like myself um, mm-hmm. help others, help our clients. So, that's true. Yeah. Did I miss anything there? And if those not, are big ones. Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, I would say that this this sort of red thread, so to speak, throughout this is that I actually my father was a coach, an exec mm-hmm. coach, and a leadership coach, and um, he is very rare to have a coach as a father. It turns out because it was I was born in 1979, and he you know there weren't a lot, weren't a lot of coaches back then. And um, for what that meant is that I got the impression as a kid that I could do whatever I want, which is a healthy thing, right, I think, rather than being forced into a certain set path. But but the downside is, is I was never really told that I should do so many, you know, A or B or C thing based on my skills. Mm-hmm. And so nor did, nor, nor did anyone say to me, you know, what you should do is A or B. And so I never, I didn't get a great deal of direction or orientation, which caused me to take a really long time to figure out what I was good at, I think. Mm. And had it not been for that podcast, I think my career would have been totally uh, in a completely different place because I don't think I was a good writer at the time. I, by the time I'd written books, I, I'd written, I want to say, 500 or 750 blog posts, right? So you get good at writing right. eventually, you would presume. Um, but, but I did know that I had a certain ability to chit chat, you know, with people. I, I had a radio voice, like I, I did radio commercials from when I was young. Mm. And so I knew, I, I suppose that that had something to do with 
I don't think people just listen because you have a good voice, but like, can't hurt, you know? So, uh, so I, I podcast, I took to podcasting very, very early. And then I was also one of the first people to ever get a job doing it. And by job, I just mean there were ads on my show and I was paid for it. And my, my fixed costs at, at when I it was in my twenties were so low that even this tiny gig, which at, at the time at the very beginning made almost no money at all was enough to allow me to quit my job. And I did. Mm. And so it put me on a, on a new track where all of a sudden I was not being paid by the hour or I wasn't being paid by salary, strictly speaking. And so it just put me on a different path than most of the people around me physically where I was in Canada. And and uh, and that truly changed my career trajectory because then at that point I was making money on the internet, right? right. In a funny, different way than most people. And but it also meant that I had to uh, I would only eat what I kill, which exactly. meant that I needed to drive value in some way for someone to pay me uh, in a non traditional way. And uh, but that has that has turned out. Yeah. So to highlight something there. So I, I went through this myself recently, like in the last mm. couple of years, making money on the internet, quitting my job. And there's yep. something that it makes you realize that salaries are kind of the perfect decoupling of, of like effort from outcome, because in a lot of companies, you're still going to get paid your salary if you perform like poorly, but still good enough that you're not yep. going to get fired. And then Correct. you're, you're probably not going to be incentivized to 10 X your performance either. So you live in this like narrow band of potentially mediocrity, depending on the company. But then you get yeah. out of that and it's like, all right, you're not going to pay rent unless you figure out how yep. to create value. And that yep. aligns your motivations. And so I think that's right. That happening early in your life, are, are you saying that that is what kind of created the affordances to do all these other things like breather and write these books and now yeah. practice? Uh, so the, when, then in between here, which wouldn't be on the Wikipedia page if there was one, is is that in between, uh, I got incredibly good at affiliate marketing, mm. and and so there was a period of time where my time and my and and my effort and the amount of money I made was completely decoupled to an absurd degree, uh, where uh, I had to meet an accountant and like start a business for the first time. And keep in mind, my background isn't really in business. I talked about my father as a coach, really all solopreneurs. I think of it this way, Daniel, just my, my perspective is, is coaches and solopreneurs are entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so I now, in retrospect, I think of my father as an entrepreneur. But previously, I, I'm not necessarily sure that I would have said so. Uh, solopreneurs, just like entrepreneurs that build products, have to eat or are forced to eat what they kill, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, it, you need to kind of figure out where there's this unique combination of, of the value that you drive, which you shouldn't, you, you don't even necessarily even know what that value is with economic slash cultural or whatever or opportunity. Right. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be in that in-between phase that, um, because I was doing one of the first podcasts, uh, and people didn't know how to monetize them. 
and they didn't know how to value the listenership that they gave me and a bunch of other people coupon codes. It was their way of saying, so you're like on the show and, and, and so you, the host says, remember when you uh, buy coffee, think Stumptown, use code <laughs> Daniel for 10% off. You see, mm -hmm. I'm doing the voice. And, and so when that happens, now they have an ability to couple, to attach the, your value of your show relative to someone else's value. And so uh, I, I found uh, really significant ways for that to work for me is the point. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wow, if I can drive a tremendous amount of value in a very short period of time, and it just kind of, it kind of blew my mind wide open. And then I, then, then I had to work backwards because uh, I, I was, I was making enough money that I definitely didn't need to worry for some time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, okay, well, I need some credibility now because I'm just some rando. And my blog was popular <laughs> and Chris's blog was even more popular than that. My co-author for a couple of my books. And uh, we had written some eBooks and we did a lot of talks at, at podcast conferences, which were like a thing back then. And uh, and then someone found one of those eBooks and said, we should write a book about this. And so this is when my credibility established itself, right? I was able to say, uh, oh yeah, not just some dude on the internet with a podcast or whatever, which is even less credible then than it, than it is today. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I had written a book and then in the first week, because of the audience, it became, like you said, a, a, a New York Times bestseller. And then I, you know, out of nowhere, things were happening. It's a sort of a wild thing that can happen on the internet that doesn't happen a lot elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting because it sounds like, to put it crudely, it sounds like you made your fuck you money and then you're like, well, I can do anything now. And then what you ended up doing was something incredibly challenging that uh, gave you even more credibility. But it makes me curious, like, what was the motivation to go from there when you, you probably didn't need to work to founding companies or going through the whole like venture back situation? You know, it's, uh, it's a great question. The blog at the time, it's still online today, but less pu published less often. It was called In Over Your Head. Mm -hmm. And it was a name of something that I felt that was happening to me on a regular basis. And the, fl the flinch, the book that you're talking about, which is, uh, we haven't put it on pre-order, but it's, it's, it's coming in and uh, has a print edition for the first time uh, in the next, I want to say maybe even eight weeks, it'll be available, is, uh, is really a book about uh, it going, like jumping into the deep end about things, so to speak. And, and, uh, and in a lot of those situations, what I was really driven by is that I felt that I had something to say and I was developing my voice and my voice was something that people were resonating with. And uh, I just kept taking on kind of bigger and bigger things and continuing to be in over my head mm. on purpose. And, and so I would end up finding people that were doing bigger and bigger projects, right? And you can like... Big comes in all shapes and sizes, of course, right? Like, uh, but I find that that now I've been a tech entrepreneur for venture back tech entrepreneur for ten years as a CEO, mm -hmm. and 
I will say that um, I I feel I'm more in my a place that that makes sense to me than ever before. Like it was a kind of a circuitous, weird path, but that uh, I really do well with people that are trying to do super hard stuff, and I really enjoy that, even though the work is obviously stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the quote comes to mind because um, you said big, and it's like this metaphor of size as a mm-hmm. as, as something to define the the problems that you're taking on or the roles that you're taking on. And the quote is, "Your life shrinks or expands in proportion to your courage." I think it's 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 by Anais yes. Nin, and to me, that's actually a great segue into the Flinch because the Flinch is a book about courage. It's about it's about the emotional labor involved in facing. Mm-hmm your the edge of your comfort zone and so it almost right. seems like you embody that in your in your life because you know your life got bigger until you're in these these roles as a as the ceo of these venture-backed tech companies and so first do you agree with that framing and then second what is the flinch about uh yeah I felt that I was in a situation where I had just written this book and then I was like, I have this really big idea. And I was like, well, I would be a huge hypocrite if I wrote this book about, as you say, courage, which I think is directionally right. And then didn't, and then had this big idea, but decided not to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I, in, the, the way that people read this book, just to give people a context of this book, I, I have the good fortune that people have um, willingly translated it of their own volition into a number of different languages. Uh, there was a period where it was the number one or one of the top uh, Kindle books downloaded ever. It, there never was a physical version, but we had done this deal with Amazon. Seth Godin and I had done this deal with Amazon that that it would be free forever, which by, which was not possible on Amazon except for like the Bible, mm. right? And so it survived, it it really uh, thrived by lots of people downloading it uh, all at once. Uh, But because also because it was in in a special category, uh, and I'm also really fortunate that uh, Seth left me the rights with it, with Mm. this book. And so so since then, it it got delisted at some point and I stopped paying attention. And now it'll be relisted by us almost as if it's a fresh book with a print edition, which will be nice. But... I had essentially forced myself to, to, I'd written this book. It was really hard to write. It was a, a really a, a deep emotional labor to do it. And I think you, you get that by reading it. I, and then in, in reading it, I found that I was talking to myself and I was like, okay, so I guess I got to go do that really hard thing that I said that I would do. And the reason that the book works is because it's not me talking to the reader, but it's almost as if the reader is speaking to themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's the only reason that that book, I, this is my thesis today. This is it's the only reason that that book can be that aggressive because yeah. it's a super aggressive book. It's probably one of the most aggressive books that one could ever write. And Godin told me that he said, you'll never get a chance to write a book that has this big of a punch ever again. Make sure that you do it to the best of your ability. And he was right. And so uh, so it works for that reason. And for the same reason that one can read it and say, 
oh my God, this person is confronting me. I am being confronted by this text. I read it myself and I'm confronted by it even today because I was just doing a, a reread to make sure that the print version of it has everything that I want and nothing else. Right. Mm. And so uh, it still works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh and and so I think that is what it is about, and I think that's what gives it its longevity. I know people uh, that that do make it do a thing as a circle of people. They all read it once a year, like and have been doing so perpetually for a really long amount of time. It's really nice to have written something like that. Uh, and I think the effectiveness and the longevity comes from the fact that it it, it has a universal ap applicability, no matter what you're going through. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in a way, it reminds me of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Like it was his journal mm. entries that were published as a book. And that's part of the reason why it's so impactful. It reads like somebody who's almost like coaching themselves or just reminding yeah. themselves mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of important truths. Um, I'm going to see, I it, I use an app called uh, Readwise. So when I highlight things in Kindle, it saves it to a database mm -hmm. and then shows me the, the quotes. And I thought it'd be fun to just open up the quotes for the flinch <laughs> uh, and see if there's anything in there. This might this might not pull up anything, but there's like yeah. there's 40 highlights here, and I would say the average highlight for per book is like one. This okay. is like an outlier book for me, and sure. it's only a 38 page book, so it's it's incredibly it's quotable. Short. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, here's one I highlighted: the anxiety of the flinch is almost always worse than the pain itself. You've forgotten that. You need to learn it again. You need more scars. You need to live. Yep. So, okay, that that perfectly captures that kind of aggressive, punchy tone. And it sounds yep. like you're speaking to yourself. It still works on me today. As I said, like I was literally reading it yesterday because it's about to go into this this world where it becomes a real thing, uh, a real thing that someone can own, right? Uh, and uh, it still works super effectively. I will say... That book could not have been this good has, had Godin not continuously pushed me. Mm. And it's like, uh, he, you know, he, the, the quote uh, that I, I will never forget that, that he said to, the thing he said to me was, do you want to think, do you want to think that it's good or do you want to be in awe of what you have written? Wow. And so, and I was like, well, first of all, I don't know how to do that. But I was I was actually very upset. I remember being in my backyard. I still live in the same place as I did then. And I was in my backyard and I'm screaming. And my fiance, who's in the house, is like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I was just so upset. I wasn't upset at Seth, but it's because I had somebody that I really respected like there was a period in time where i i think i went to be like he, he had the career that i think i wanted to have at the time mm. and uh and so i i of course i could not let him down and really what i meant is i couldn't let myself down by letting him down mm -hmm. and uh and so yeah so he forced he forced me to confront it could the book couldn't have existed without him and so that's why i you know he, he essentially he 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 forced me to to drive that quality uh, uh, out of myself. And I, there was another book at the time that I was very influenced by, which is French. It's by Eliane Cizou, and it's called Three Steps on the La Three Steps on the Ladder of Writing. 
Mm. And it is French, so of course it's about suffering. And uh, and it's like it's like great art doesn't exist without death and pain. Mm-hmm. Like is like one of the themes. And I still have that book in my bookcase today. I know exactly where it's standing. And uh, and I think I was yeah I was very affected by that at the time. And I was like talking to a lot of people about fear. It was just like it was a wild time. You know, I, obviously I, I put a lot of care into it and I really felt at the time that I was doing my life's work. Maybe I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Other than Seth Godin challenging you and you being exacerbated, what sort of pain went into writing the flinch? Uh, I was, I just finished the uh, Camino de Santiago, which was an 800 kilometer walk in, in, Spain, not very far from where you are right now, Mm. uh, which I started, I want to say, in April or May of 2011, and it went on for 35 days. And during that time, you walk for about 30 kilometers a day on average, so 20 miles per day. A lot of people do this, by the way. It sounds like it's really hard. There is a difficult, there's a level of difficulty to it, but it's by far the easiest of the trails that are mm. out there. They're uh, in, in, in big walks, they call them in French, the grandes randonnées in, uh, in Europe. There's a bunch of them. The, one of the hardest one is called the GR20 and it's in Corsica and it's literally up and down like this. And there's rails to prevent you from falling down the mountain. And, uh, and, uh, the, if, if you get injured, you got to get helicoptered out. Wow. So the the Camino de Santiago is very long, but it's the opposite of that. It's actually incredibly easy to do, straightforward, but in, but it requires a great deal of persistence. And you still get injured, but you get in, injured as a, as a form of repetitive stress injury more than mm-hmm. acute, like falling down or something, right? And uh, and so I was going through that and doing it, and uh, and really being put against the the edge of my ability. I remember getting a loss one day and just losing it. And it's like a famous story that me and my fiance share when whenever we go to to dinner and talk at dinner parties with people about how I got lost and how it uh, in the woods as the sun was going down uh, with no cell phone service and uh, how it, uh, it it taught me limits. And so uh, I think that that's certainly one example, but also I was just confronted. I think like you don't, you don't, you probably don't write a book like that unless you see fear kind of everywhere all over your life. Yeah. And uh, recently someone said to me that this is a form of, it's like what they call uh, exposure therapy. That book is a form of exposure therapy. Like, you're afraid of this? Just go and do it over and over and over again. And uh, it challenges you to uh, do deliberate hard things, no matter whether they're useful for you or not, just, just, just for the practice of doing things that are difficult. And, and I was just, you know, I, I was, I think I was seeing it like kind of everywhere in my life. And I think the main thing that happened is, is the place where it was successful is it was able to give it a name. Mm-hmm. And so by, by calling it, by saying it's flinching versus saying that it's this 
feeling that you have. By giving it a name, you're able to kind of point it at and you uh, it, it, it disarms it a little bit. And then deconstructing that book. Yeah. So it's it's it turns out it's eighty-eight pages when you when you print it out. Mm-hmm. And uh in a very in a small book format. So it's really short. Uh but it kind of like hits you right there, like kind of over and over and over again. Yeah, and for people who are listening who want to get a sense of what the flinch is, uh the best example, and this might even be in the book, um, the best example I can think of is if you take a cold shower you know that the water's not going to kill you. You know it's good. You Maybe you've even done it before. But for some reason, like I've taken thousands of cold showers in my life, but still to this day, every day, right before the water hits me, there's like this, this flinch. Like I just, I brace myself. I, I, like, I don't really know exactly what it's going to be, but th- that moment is like this thin membrane of discomfort. And if yes. you pay really close attention to it, you realize it's that, it's that thing that is leading to resistance and avoidance but what's so interesting is it's it's actually a lot thinner than it seems on the outside it's like a paper tiger yeah mm-hmm. that's true it is very thin it's thin but it, it doesn't feel that it is all that you know is that there is a as you say a membrane between you and that whatever that is doesn't really matter and uh you don't realize that it's like a bubble and you just pass through it and the bubble it bursts and then that's it. It's over. It doesn't feel that way on one side of it. Where do you face the flinch most regularly in your life today? Hmm. I think when you run a company, you're kind of forced to confront things. Uh, an early coach of mine an an exec coach that I had at my last business was like, this is one of the best ways to drive self-improvement is because you're, you're constantly confronted by your own weakness. It's especially true if your company is scaling and it is successful, uh, because things are happening very, very rapidly. So first of all, okay. So, uh, anything as difficult as whether you lay someone off for the first time, which is, which is tough. And it's actually tough. Even after you do it a hundred times, it's still difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you are forced to, because if you don't do it, you know, you, whatever number of people you have in a business, 20 people in a business because of this 21st person, the other 20 people are suffering, right? And so there is this pressure on you to be able to do it and to do it well and, and to be to remain humane as you do it and other things like that. So anything from something like this to, oh, my God, are we growing fast enough? The, the psychological aspect of, of being a CEO, especially in venture, it's, it's actually why um, uh, venture-backed businesses increasingly have coaches to support right. them. Because there's a lot at stake, right? And so one of them is just from a, from a capital standpoint. Like, for example, my business today has raised around, I want to say, uh, $10 bucks, one $2 million round, one $8 million round. Which, at, I want to say, seven to 10 years ago, I would have been like, wow. Now I'm like, okay, it's a start of something good. But uh, now you're like, okay, ticking clock. Like, let's go make something. And so 
anything from you've put three months of your life and five other people's lives into building a product, you bait it, you put it out there, no one cares about it, shit, you got to kill it. Mm. And you got to be merciless about doing that so that you can, and, and then you have to confront your team and you have to confront yourself in this situation. It's not applicable to me, to me today, but we did definitely do that several times throughout various companies that I ran, right? And you have to confront the team. You have to confront yourself and say, okay, my, my idea that I thought was genius or at least worth pursuing is actually fucking dumb. And I just wasted this much of my life and these people trusted me. And now I need them to trust me. Ideally, I need them to trust me again. Hmm on this new thing. How do I know this new thing is not as dumb as the old thing? How do uh, I stand up in front of people and give and, and feel the confidence that I have in order to be able to convey it? So there's a hundred different ways. It's interesting. Uh, while my father was alive, I would not have uh, ever wanted to Coaches were some of the earliest clients at Breather, by the way, mm. because they need space to be able to do their work. And it's actually mm. how I came to come close to coaching again is because all these Breather clients were were coaches that were one-on-one -on -one coaches that needed space to do their work. And so I don't think if my father was alive, I would have ever started a coaching adjacent business. It would have been too close. But uh, now that I'm in it again... You asked me earlier what I was doing, and I happened to be doing a coaching call, and it made me realize that actually, like, this is a funny thing to say, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it'll be perceived the way that it's being expressed. It's not like wah wah, like these people that raised a bunch of money and all these, all these things are uh, people that are really suffering a lot. They are suffering a lot, but they're in a position of privilege. Like both those things can be true. Mm -hmm. But also that position of privilege does not take away from their suffering, right? right. And so to to be able to to speak to CEOs, which is uh, I coach, my, my coaching practice is limited to five different CEOs at any given time and not more. And those relationships tell t tend to be and have been multi-year relationships in most cases. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, you find that you get to know someone else's inner world really well. And several of my clients have actually, before they even knew me, they read that book and right. they were like, they sought me out specifically because of that book. And, and so it's interesting how it has come full circle where now it's like the book that I wrote 10, 10, 12 years ago, before I ever had a coaching practice has become the thing that is compelling to the people that want to be clients of mine. And I find myself listening to CEOs that have put onto themselves a great deal of pressure and now have a great deal of pressure and they're trying not to be crushed by it. And they're trying to do good work and they're trying to be positive and like all these things. Right. And so uh, I guess I guess what I'm trying to express is it's it's very nice to be in that inner world where you feel where people feel enough trust in you that they will tell you things that they don't tell a lot of other people, right? right. And so I really I really like that world. Like I could not go into a hundred thousand people's houses and tell people that quote that you just gave me or any of the other quotes. 
like you're not good enough or whatever the book says, right? Uh, <laughs> I could never do that. But I have been allowed through that medium to be in a more more than a hundred thousand different people's Kindles and on their computers and all these things. In or and they have allowed themselves to be spoken to by me indirectly, and in an incredibly um, in an incredibly confrontational way. Uh, and I just think that that's like kind of a blessing to do that work, you know? So I'm super grateful for it. Yeah. So the, it's almost like your clients, uh, have to be candid about where they flinch so that the coaching arrangement is, is productive. And maybe I'm bringing my own experience here a little bit, but I notice. so I, I'm also an executive coach and I noticed that the bottleneck in most people's systems, if you look at their life like a system of inputs and outputs, the bottleneck is always some form of emotional labor. It's not that they don't have the right productivity Agreed. system set up or, you know, they, obviously yeah. there's these practical, tactical things that can be fixed, but they're always downstream of some deep inner thing that maybe they're, maybe it, there's that thin membrane again, you know, and they're flinching away from some fear. And when coaching mm -hmm. is effective, it's like you compassionately bring somebody right up to the precipice of that and then give mm -hmm. them sufficient clarity and encouragement to, to make the leap. That's true. You, you can never make them do it. And uh, you also have to have a, a, a probably meaningful amount of humility mm. to be able to know that you may know something about what they're going through, but in reality, you actually don't know a thing. And, uh, and so a combination of that humility, but also to be in a, in a pretty, uh, deep enough, uh, place where you can have honest conversations with people that sometimes you're, you're actually not even like, they may not be able to have that level of conversation with their friends. Mm-hmm. And you may not be able to have that level of conversation with your own friends because the relationship is different. There's like incentives and they know you as a human being versus as a professional and like all these other uh, aspects of the relationship that make it not possible to just be like, you sure this inferiority complex is working for you, man? <laughs> you know? Right. Which is kind of, you could say it in a, in a sort of a calm and empathetic way or whatever it is, what version of that it is, it is you're saying, but to, it, it's in a lot of places where you can really say that to another person. And so that's why like that coaching relationship is very unique mm -hmm. and really valuable. Uh, and, uh, yeah, why that work is so interesting. And I'm actually really happy because like, in 2013, I had a coach then, uh, and I've had one essentially almost throughout that entire time. But most people, I don't even know if Matt Mokery was like coaching at that time. Jerry Colonna probably was. These are all people in Silicon Valley, in the, the Silicon Valley coaching world. Ed Batista, who's my coach today, was a Silicon Valley coach then. And uh, so a few of the kind of high level people were doing it in a, in a, like in a beta format or whatever, but it wasn't big business in the same way. And 
so now it has spread out and there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley with coaches, which I think is probably the right move. And I'm really happy that that's the case because Lord knows like these people put themselves through so much suffering. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I don't know. It just needs to, it, I would not put myself through that in the, uh, it, it, while being isolated ever again. Mm -hmm. I would say that at the last business that I ran, I was probably too isolated. I didn't have enough people that I really knew how to talk to, and I didn't have enough expertise around the table and all these other things. And I still managed to build like a really remarkably unique and successful business. Uh, the, uh, but the, but it's the psychological pressure of being an entrepreneur that is, that is actually like, uh, the, uh, the thing that I think people don't quite get, right? Like if you say, uh, uh, to uh, one version of this would be, oh my God, I tried to, I tried to raise 5 million bucks. I only was able to raise two. Like, and, and you say that to an everyday person, they're not going to be like, oh, poor you. Right. Like just, that's so awful. Like they, they have no comprehension of what that really means. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, and likewise, even to your co-founder or to someone on your team, you might be like, man, I really, we need to grow 5X. We need to grow 8X, but uh, we only grew 5X or something. And, and so the, the, your, the, the relationship you have with your coach is as close as it can be to with an, another entrepreneur or with yourself and so it's like you need a lot of those relationships to be able to psychologically re remain steady because that's what your business needs from you mm -hmm. yeah a big theme uh, that has emerged in my life over the last five years was I, I just noticed that i performed better when i had support and accountability and my, my mm -hmm. discipline levels would go up a lot if i had someone to be accountable to and i used to think that that was like a character flaw. Like, Oh, I should be able to just do things on my own. Like if I want this goal, shouldn't I be able to just achieve it? Why do mm -hmm. I need external support? And then, uh, mm -hmm. I just flipped it around and I realized that actually maybe we're, we're meant to be supported by groups of people. Maybe we're not meant to be these lone wolf, you know, Sigma male types that you kind of yeah. see depicted in movies and stuff like that. And so mm -hmm. now I bring, as much as possible, I bring people to help me out with things and that involves coaching, but also I've kind of converted my friend group into, um, just like a, a really radically honest space. So they sure. might call me out on the inferiority complex and we might mm -hmm. have like an argument about it and stuff, but that's just kind of normalized. And it really okay. helps with the, with the emotional labor that you're referring to. The, the version that I have that I suggest that everybody do. And some people are creating businesses out of it, which I think is okay. Uh, but also it doesn't need to be a business is, uh, is like CEO peer groups, mm -hmm. which at breather, when I was a CEO, I didn't have other CEOs right. as peers that we all met together. Like it, 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 they would all meet together sometimes like for a dinner or something, but it would never be like a consistent thing. 
Whereas now on a monthly basis, a consistent thing is like very useful where it's like someone comes in, there's five or so people. One person is like, I have the biggest problem today and I'd like to talk about it. Right. And then they're able to address that and they get the collective intelligence in place. Everyone knows, oh, you want to raise five, but you only raise two and everyone understands them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it has become... The first first time I was ever in one of these was Michael Karn, who was the CEO was the CEO of Skillshare, was the founder of Skillshare, and uh, he brought people together. They were all repeat entrepreneurs because that like it gives you it's a certain level of experience. And uh, yeah, likewise, I would never go without it again. And I mostly kind of like I manage mine today, and it's super worthwhile. It's you know you build you build long term relationships that way. I used to. I used to make fun of this. If you go into the podcast, you probably would find a version of me that from almost 20 years ago, basically, 2004, so 20 years ago, that would make fun of people where their friends were mostly their coworkers mm -hmm. or people in their in their work environment. But in reality, if you really like your work, your friends should be part of your work environment, right? right. It's just kind of natural you're similarly minded and it's true whether or not like it was true when i was a writer like all my a lot of my friends were writers and we had all written books and we all did speaking circuit things and all these things and so the version of that is true for anyone who has a passion for their work probably right and what i was speaking to at the time was work as i thought of it which would be like you work in some, yeah, like, uh, like Dunder Mifflin, mm -hmm. you know, like, like working, uh, working in the quote, the office, like the show. And I, maybe that's still true that most jobs are that I think increasingly the average place that people work is, is still not like a tech job, but increasingly it is. And, uh, but that that is the kind of job that I was speaking about. But interestingly enough, having run a business is another thing that I learned is uh, someone came to me one day and said, I actually like they loved they were like a Gen Z type of person. And they said, I've always wanted an office where people really liked each other, like in the office. Right. <laughs> and I and, and said, you you did that for me. Thank you. And they were like really grateful for it. And I thought that that was a really cute story. And I actually really love that. And actually that person ended up getting married to someone else in my last no company. Way. And so that it really did happen for them. That's a little miracle that they created for themselves. But the downside of that is it makes me into the Michael Scott character, which is the person <laughs> that everyone makes fun of, it turns out. Um, this reminds me of something. It's, it's a little bit random, but uh, have you heard of this movement on TikTok called Core Core? I'm aware of core core so, and I'm aware. So I would like your description of it mm -hmm. because there's that one. And then there's like a sub movement inside of that, but go ahead. So I don't know if I have the, the final description of it, but from my understanding, it's, it's like these wholesome videos that also first take a moment to acknowledge just how weird reality has gotten. And so they'll often start with mm -hmm. like a very overwhelming um, like quick succession of like stereotypical flashy TikToks and then it kind of overwhelms you and yeah. then all of a sudden it just turns into something peaceful and then there's like Alan Watts quotes or something like that 
and it gives you this like melancholic feeling about what is yeah. actually going on with the world and what are the the deeper values that matter. And what what's interesting, the reason why it came to mind is um, they use scenes from The Office a lot. Like I've seen multiple hmm. examples that people are like, this is my favorite core core video. And it, it always includes these little scenes from The Office. And I think it's because there's something hmm. about The Office that captures the, I guess the jadedness that people have with modern life, like uh, going to The Office, you know, they're, they're just working on something like paper. It's like not even that important, but right. it's coupled with yeah. the wholesome human relationships that, that people ultimately care about. So, um, right. you, you mm. kind of, uh, yeah, what you just described there, um, I, I think, yeah, it's a good example of, uh, of that, that duality. The, the triviality of it all is, is almost like, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think as, as I've gotten older, I, it's, it, it is interesting because I'm, I'm also, as I'm confronted with that, with having to re reread this, this text again, to make sure that it is both, because it's almost nothing has changed inside of it, right? But at the same time, it's 12 years later. So like looking at it, and I think there's a reference to a Blackberry from 2011 in this mm. book, which is gone. But like the rest of it is almost entirely untouched. I, I, I'm found, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm also saying like, huh, it's interesting. What would I write if it was a version of this for later, right? So not changing it, but being conscious of what the difference and how, how I have, what the things I have learned maybe and the things that I've forgotten in that time and, uh, what I'm, uh, I guess what I'm, what I have noticed and it sort of speaks to your sort of your office thing, your point is that I have an increasing appreciation for the mundane, mm. right? Like for everyday regular life, like coming home and you're dog is happy to see you like really simple things and um how uh and what the, the value of those things to uh to how happy you are i i would have under uh appreciated family 10 15 years ago mm. today i happened to get a note from my mother-in-law the other day my aunt uh, sent an email as email, as ants often do. They send emails to the whole family, right? I'm sure mm -hmm. it happens to you. And she said, I had a dream. And she said, the mother-in-law was there. And then my fiance was there. And then we all went into a nice restaurant and it was just a great, it was a great time. And, <laughs> and so my mother-in-law sends me a text. She's like, your aunt is just the sweetest person I've ever seen in my whole life. And, and, and I don't know if things like that, that I would have really appreciated because I was at that time, especially in your twenties and thirties, what you're really concerned with, if you're an ambitious person, which lots of the people who read this mm. either were initially ambitious and I have the good fortune, like, like Amjad Massad is, um, the dude who started Replit, who's one of the, I, I want to say might be the next like Stripe. It might be, it's an incredible business. And it was only started like five years ago. And he is a huge advocate of that book. And, and so he was an ambitious, it, it tends to be people that are young and in their twenties and they're really ambitious and they're, they're confronting things about themselves. And so, uh, that young 
person who really wants to have that step function difference in their life, that book is, is actually, a, it's effective for them in a different way because they're not sure about their life. Mm -hmm. Here, you're, uh, you're sure about your life. You just, there's at the age of 40 plus, there's things you've forgotten. Right. And, and so I find that reading that, that book today is like about, it's like remembering things you've forgotten. Whereas when you're reading it and you're an ambitious 20 year old, you're like, uh, oh my God. Like, I think that's why it gives, gives people that kind of like weird mini revelation when it does is, is because they're like, oh my God, like, yes, this is it. This is the answer, you know, or whatever. A different different impression. So now you can have, as a forty year old, you can have that that realization of, of oh my god, yeah, here are these things that I forgot. But also with the increased appreciation of things that are eternally valuable, mm -hmm. right? Which in your twenties you often, and certainly true as me, more often in, than not in your twenties, what you find yourself also doing is you're discarding things that you don't like about right. your way the way you were brought up and you're trying to carve a path for yourself like who am i relative to the way that i was brought up i'm not like those people i'm like me which is different in a b c d way yeah it's a you have a kind of an expansive phase to your life cycle and then maybe there's like a contraction phase as well where you start focusing on the things yeah. that you've discovered matter most to you but when you're growing up, mm -hmm. it's uh, you're full of potential and and uncertainty, and yeah. it's very confusing. Yeah. Um, if you continue the your your circle, it's it's there's a phase where you're looking outward, and then there's mm -hmm. a phase where you're looking inward. And then the ideal thing is you don't just continue to look inward. You have the you're like okay, I've looked inward, and I, I've looked back inward, and I'm, I appreciate things on here inside, but I'm going to go and I'm going to look out back outside again. Right. And it's, it's a cycle, which allows you to see the new, bring it into, into yourself. Right. And then, but also be able to look at the things that are currently in yourself and say, oh, yes, these things, these things were and are, and were important. I forgot about them. Where do you personally find the most meaning in your life? Uh, I think I have found a great appreciation of nature that I didn't really have before. Mm. I wasn't brought up like uh, as a, I was brought up in, in what I would consider today still to be like kind of the worst of both worlds, which is the suburbs. Right. And, uh, and the suburbs do not have the rawness of nature. This is my perspective. Nor do they have the intensity of the city. They have neither, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so knowing that that's not the type of person that I want to be them, I had to choose one of those other two. And I chose the city, and I remember choosing the city. And that continues to be the case. I live in the city when a lot of other people I know, they, they, they drive places, I walk places. Mm -hmm. And that was a deliberate choice. But 
over, and I want to say it's a friend of mine that got me acquainted with the ocean who really got me to appreciate nature again in a way that I didn't really understand. And so my appreciation for uh, being surrounded, like to, of being in, like in the forest or being on a mountain or being on a surfboard in the water or any, any number of different things like that are, are really magnified relative to um, before. And so, uh, yeah, so that's a really big one. I, I never would have thought, I never really would have understood before why someone would, I'm Canadian, so it doesn't really apply to me, but I'm, I'm going to Americanize it, why someone want, would want to live like in Arizona, mm. for example, or they'd want to live in Utah, or why they'd want to live in Oregon, Right. But now I understand those things really, really well. And it's especially, but, and by the way, like part of that is just like, is how the world has changed. Like we're sitting here on a Zoom call, right? And so the world actually is different than it was. And I, uh, I remember uh, when I was 14, I used a dial-up modem to dial into a local BBS, which you used to do back in the day, right? It would use your phone line and it would dial in to another computer and it would be a bulletin board and p other people would have messaged that, you know, sent written messages and only one person could get in at the time as like a, like a local kind of saved version of a forum. And except all the people were local and it turns out they were all older than me mm. and uh, and so all of a sudden it's like this kind of world opened up, but at the, but at the time, the other, the only thing that I really had exposure to is like, whatever, like your neighborhood or, you know, so, so I really hope that we get the best of both worlds. I get it. Well, why there's this kind of anti-movement of people going back into the office and deciding mm. that they want to be in person. And I, so I've, I've interviewed people like that because I mean, throughout this, I have about 15 or between 15, and 20 people in my business today that I, I want to say I've interviewed like 150 people. I interview a lot of people before I hire. And so there's a set of them that are like, I can't wait to get back to the office. There's mm. a set of these people. And I'm definitely not one of them. Same. And I know that what I want is I want to be able to meet people, which last time that I did it, I like you, I, I we all went to Portugal, we were in Lisbon, and we all met there. Great choice. And that's where my team really first met all at once. And it mm. was great. So uh, I way prefer that with this new world of, yeah, and we, you know, and we all get on a meeting at 11.30 a.m. because that means it's 8.30 Pacific. And it means it's 5.30 in like Serbia, right? And that's when we do our meetings because it's the only time where we're all kind of on daylight hours. This new world works for me and I get to, I think, have everything that I need. And I, I don't really believe that you don't get the same level of work or intensity or people that care. Uh, one of one person on my team, I, who I won't mention by name, but like did an, did an all nighter last week, trying to make sure that something worked, that they needed to work by a certain deadline. Nobody made them do that, right? By the way, super appreciative of this person. 
uh, and I've told them, right? But I'll say it here also. Mm-hmm. Like, super appreciative that they do this. Don't take it for granted, especially don't take it for granted because no one is putting pressure on them at the office. Like, stay late, dude. Right? Like, it's a choice. So people that are similarly minded get to all choose each other now. And I just, I, I love that that's the case and that uh, we all have an opportunity to meet one another in the place that we all want to meet. And it turns out it's a lot of people that like me, like just want to go out and live in the woods and that want to get on the internet. You know, they're like pseudo Unabombers, not really, but like <laughs> pseudo Unabombers that like are just out there in the woods. They just love it. They're not building bombs to be clear, but, uh, but who, who really appreciate the solitude. Um, so maybe tell the listeners, what is it that you are trying to do with practice? What's the vision for the company? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really love serving individuals as a point of entry in starting a business. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is, is it's really easy to find out what a person wants. And then well, you compare that to like what a company wants. Getting getting what a company wants is actually really complicated because uh, it takes forever for them to decide and what they are, their standard of what they want is really high and all these other things. Uh, whereas uh, getting a person to choose something is incredibly fast. Mm. And so that's really compelling to me. And because my father was a coach, I have this natural attitude of whenever I feel like I'm building something, I'm building software for individuals, I'm building for myself. And I'm in to a degree, I'm building for all the millions of solopreneurs out there. And so there's a lot of them and they don't get well served. And when they find us, they love us. And it's so exciting to like meet a person and they're like, oh my God, thank you. You know? So there's just a natural, uh, yeah, there's a natural motivation for me the same way that at the beginning of Breather, uh, I was able to serve people with kind of on-demand space and they were able to use it, choose it and like appreciate it right away. Like the feedback, feedback cycle is really, really, really strong. Mm. And from there, you can build a business so long as you have an understanding of like, what's this market, right? And uh, so we started with coaches, I want to say really launching it a, a year and a half ago or something. I don't actually remember, but that, the the uh, the round that we most recently did, which was led by Andreessen Horowitz and Tony Robbins and a bunch of other people, um, was, uh, I think, in July of 2021. And so I just really love serving that, that type of person. And I knew that from running my last business, that when you don't get a lot of shots at really changing the world, Mm. it's really difficult to change anything about the world. The world wants to stay mostly the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And so if you are going to change the world, you got to find a way to change it. First of all, that it's going to maintain your attention for 10 years, probably. And that wants to be changed by you. And so uh, 
so Breather was really interesting because I built a product that I really loved. Uh, and the idea that you could unlock a door with a phone and that you could pay for it, like it, basically e-commercing real estate is super interesting and compelling and weird. Mm -hmm. And it was very compelling to build. But then all of a sudden I found that I was in the real estate industry and I, I actually didn't know anything about the real estate industry. And as I grew to come to know it, there was a lot of that that I like those people didn't want anything to do with the way that I wanted to do business. Not, mm -hmm. not like, I, I think I'm making a bigger case of it than, than it is. It's real estate really want to stay the way that it was. Mm -hmm. And so the ideal place that you're going to change the world in is a place where you're going to make a big difference. When you make that difference, people are going to be like, oh, wow, this is great. And then you're going to continue to be motivated by the, the, the progress that you're making. And when you're not making progress, you're still motivated by the idea of it. And so I think only half, some percentage of that that wasn't 100% existed at Breather. But nonetheless, I was able to make it into a multi tens of millions in revenue uh, per year company while I was CEO. So that's pretty good. I, and so I just lined things up appropriately for myself so that I knew that I could do a 10-year thing and help lots of people, starting with coaches, advancing into other types. Like the last five people that have... I was just looking earlier. It was like, there was like a, a consultant. There was like a virtual assistant. There was a photographer and all these people that just recently signed up. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the idea that I can serve all these people when they're going out there and they're like trying to build their thing. Like, I just find that incredibly compelling to be able to, the metaphor that I use often is, um, is, is like you, you have a well and, and, if you if that well is trustworthy enough, then over time people will come back to it over and over and over again to get water, right? And this is the best type of work. If you can get into this type of work, whatever that is for you, so you get into this type of work where you are the well, and the well is trustworthy, and people come back to it over and over and over again. Given enough time, it becomes like their place that they go, and then given even more time, they build their house next to it because they're going to decide that they're going to live next to this well, because this well is going to give them a foundation that they need. Mm -hmm. And then given enough people that you do this with, a little village will sprout up around you and your well, because you have done good work. And this work is consistently delivering something to people. And then over town, over time, uh, that little village will become a town and, and maybe a city. Right. And I just find that like super compelling. It, it also, it really, uh, it tickles the kind of like Sim City like yeah. bone in my body or whatever, you know. But and and so like you only get a few shots at that because of the ten because of the nature of the world and how big it big it is. You only get a few ten year shots when you fail. Luckily, it doesn't take ten years; it takes like three or something. But if it's going to succeed, it better be with something that you really care about doing. And so that's how it happened. Yeah. So you mentioned that you need to have the interest in it. So that the idea compels you for this 10 year period, but it also has to be mm -hmm. the world has to want you to change it. And so in my mind, yep. I would right. say it's like passion and market, like the market has to, to actually want it. Yep. And then Timing. this analogy of the well, it kind of got me thinking about founders themselves. And uh, I, I work with founders. I'm get, focusing more and more on founders as my 
practice develops. Um, that's not how I started. And I'm wondering like, what well do founders need? And you're building a well for solopreneurs that could turn Mm -hmm. into a city in 10 years. Um, we talked about a couple things like maybe founders need that, uh, group, uh, therapy thing where they once a month connect with each other and talk about their, their issues. Um, but I imagine you have a lot of other ideas since you are a founder and you coach founders as well. So maybe as we bring this to a close, Mm. we can talk about that. Uh, I think they, one of the hardest challenges of a founder, I'm sure you're familiar, is this combination of uh, how much should I believe in myself? And part of the time you think I don't believe in myself enough. And then others, you're like, I believe in myself too much. Like I believe in my own bullshit. And there is this tough part where Sometimes, you know, uh, Peter Thiel, who I don't agree with politically, but who I think is otherwise a really smart person, um, would say that you need to be contrarian and right. Mm. So your idea needs to be mispriced. The market, a big portion of the market needs to like be like, this is stupid. But then a certain set of early people need to be like, wow, this is incredible. Right. And. So the problem is, is you're, you're confronting a bunch of out there resistance very early on because almost nobody believes in you. Mm. And in fact, I would argue if too many people believe in you, the idea is probably not good enough. So just the right set of people uh, believe in you. If that's the case, you're confronting a lot of resistance, but then you have to go internally and you have to deliberately not believe in what you are experiencing out there. Right. Because most people say, this is dumb. Stop doing this. Mm. And you're like, no, I really believe in it. So the resistance that you encounter in the world has to not not stop you from doing the thing you want to do. But at the same time, you have to not delude yourself, which is what the people, most of the people out there are actually getting, trying to get you to to do. They're trying to get you to be like, hey, stop believing in this thing. You shouldn't believe in it. And you're like, no, I should believe it until I should not. And it's really hard to, it's why the, the internal psychology of entrepreneurship is so difficult. And so probably you should not do that alone. Mm. And having external resources that are, that are also smart ambitious that have ideally brought something to market or that know how to, and, uh, maybe that have coach training or are other entrepreneurs or whatever is probably like really, really valuable. And I think the only reason that breather survived as an idea in the first place, because like my lawyer brought me to breakfast and he was like, you have a speaking and writing career. Stop what you are doing. It doesn't make sense. He brought like a landlord to the meeting. He was, the landlord was like, this is dumb. It was an intervention. Stop it. <laughs> it sounds like an intervention. It was. And um, uh, so, so yeah, just having the right level, the appropriate level of delusion, you need some, not zero, but also not too much. Really difficult to do that. 
I'm reminded of a a quote that goes way back to my childhood. So I I initially uh, I, w- I was in uh, clinical research and I was planning to be a doctor. So I was working uh, with scientists in my over my summers. And I remember I talked to the cell biologist once about what does it take to be an effective scientist. And he gave this analogy. He said, you need the tenacity of a freight train when pursuing an idea or some sort of creative inspiration while simultaneously having the ability to turn on a dime as soon as you see good evidence to the contrary. And that's Mm -hmm. an incredibly rare character trait that most scientists don't have, but that's what distinguishes the best scientists and probably the best entrepreneurs. Mm. The, the good fortune in entrepreneurship is that you can recruit people. And ideally, if you're a good enough salesperson, you would actually recruit people that are smarter than you and that will be able to morph your thing into something that works. And in probably in, in some version of science, it's like you're much more of a lone genius, maybe, mm. right? So it's it, I, I think it, maybe it's tougher. Entrepreneurship, at least, you have a set of people that are hitting up against the market over and over again. Um, they say this sometimes where if your, your salespeople are too good early on in the business, it's actually a terrible sign because they're too good at selling something that fundamentally the person doesn't want. Right. Right. So you need just the right amount of salesmanship so that you're not too good. Your hair is not too good. You're not that slick. And, uh, and that way people are like, yeah, I do want this, but it's only the people who genuinely do want it. You're not like being too effective at your job. Yeah. Um, as we, as we come to a close, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. The, I I think what I uh, want to understand and what I would want to understand offline is what point were you at when the book affected you? That's what I, one of the things I would want to know. Mm. And then I would want to know, uh, what point were you at where you hit up against the, uh, the work that I do today at practice and what made those two places points where you were ready to make a decision to read a book or to be affected by it and to use software, uh, despite the fact that you had never heard of it necessarily. Uh, 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 yeah, I, I, I think that's what I want to know. And where are the other people that are like you? How do I find them? Hmm. Okay. Let me try. Um, I think the flinch first showed up for me when I was in my early twenties. I can't actually remember like the, the distinct period of my life because I think the book actually showed up a few times. Like somebody sent me a PDF about it. And in my mind, there's two Mm -hmm. contexts where it impacted me. The first is when it comes to my whole life story. Like I don't like using the word career, but just figuring out like who I am and what am I doing with my life and, mm. and just pushing forward on like do, doing alternative things to figure that out, like sending cold emails to people or uh, 
publishing things online, like these moments where you have to leap. There's these moment leaps of faith um, and facing some personal challenges where I realized the only obstacle was my, my, my own fear. And then the other area of my life where it had a huge impact, which is kind of hilarious is, uh, and it makes sense. It was my dating life where oh, yeah. like the flinch was like understanding the flinch and my relationship with it was what allowed me to, to go up and, and talk to supermodels and, and like have amazing romantic adventures and, just realizing that, oh, the only thing that's stopping me from pursuing the women that I want is my my lack of courage and just being really honest about that and and just noticing that, okay, there's like some resistance here. Um, and that was that was in my early 20s and obviously continued on. I'm 30 now. Um, so that's that's where that's answer to number one. Mm-hmm. The, number two with uh, with practice and encountering um, you again, basically through that it was almost like a chain of synchronicities uh just like again like i i didn't i wasn't looking for a tool actually i was looking for a tool before because my coaching mm-hmm. practice was doing really well and i just couldn't keep up with all the administrative stuff and i just hated all the tools and so mm-hmm. i just figured i could do it all in notion and via email and all this stuff and i'm pretty good with that kind of thing but at some point i just stumbled on the website uh, because of our mutual connection, Eva. And then mm-hmm. something about the way everything was framed, like the marketing of it and like the slick, you know, like animation and stuff. I was like, oh, they understand me. And so mm-hmm. I felt I felt seen. And then I, I signed up. Um, and it also, it felt right. It was like, again, that's why I said synchronicity. It was like, oh, this was meant to like show up. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, and then your other question was, how to find the others. Mm-hmm. Um, what qualities do the others have? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so it, I think it, it points out that I'm right or that it's one expression is, is when people are in their twenties, they're they're I think they look out for a certain level of not necessarily mentorship, but like information about things. And they end up, uh, passing yeah they the, this book ended up being passed and still is passed a bunch of um amongst a bunch of people so that makes a lot of sense to me uh and i think more than ever like just like when i see successes uh what i want to say is like i want to examine it and be like why is it successful and be really clear about how that happened so i can do it on purpose instead of by accident mm. right Two, so two things come to mind, and this is kind of like my personal way of, of compressing, I guess, the answer to the question that you gave, which is I realized at some point in my life that the one of the key KPIs for an individual is vitality. Like just how alive do you feel on a mm-hmm. daily basis? Do, do I feel like a drone or do I feel very alive? And I think the flinch mm-hmm. is a very instrumental concept in that toolkit of the liveness, if you're thinking about successes and what constitutes a successful journey over an unsuccessful one, I think it's people who rather feel uncomfortable and alive than comfortable and drone. So I would look for people like that. It, that makes sense. And that, that is, uh, that's the person that I try to be. 
So Julian, I'll give you the last word. Is there anything you want to plug anywhere where people I mean, can I find think, you? Yeah. No, not necessarily. I think that we, we talked about it. Uh, if you, uh, the, the web, the book that you're talking about, that we've been talking about is a book flinch. It was originally published for free. Uh, you can find a version of it if you Google it. Uh, you, we also have a print edition that is coming out for the first time that we have a limited set of copies that we're uh, publishing that'll be good to see out there in the world. And then for the stuff that we build today, it's at practice.do. And as you know, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. Yep. Julian, thanks so much for this conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a fun, good connection, and I had a great time. <laughs>